In our world, there are many top-level athletes, successful business people, and achievers of all kind. You don't have to look far to find these successful people by our world's standard. And what is it that makes these people successful? Well, of course, we could attribute several different things. We could say it's their skill, it's their talent, it's their sheer willpower and determination to be the best at what they do. But what they also have in common, with the rare exception of a few, is that they set goals to get to where they want to go. They set a goal and they keep their eyes fixed on that goal until they take a hold of it, until they reach it. These successful people from our world's perspective are often goal-driven people. And what they have discovered really is how God designed us all to be to a large degree. They discovered that we make progress when we have clear goals in mind and we keep our focus on it. And when we don't have a goal in life, we end up really drifting into meaninglessness and purposelessness. From all observations, then, goals are powerful and have the capacity for great good. They have the power to put us on a trajectory towards something far greater and better. They clarify where one should spend his efforts and what pitfalls to avoid in reaching that goal. They give long-term vision, and they also provide motivation to get to it. So what are your goals here this morning in life? What is it that you are reaching for? What is it that you are pursuing? As we come to our text this morning, Paul puts before us a goal that all of us as Christians must strive for. A goal that Paul tells us is better than money, earthly achievements, or the pleasures of this fleeting life. A goal that is more important than attaining a promotion, a status, or, or prestige. A goal that is greater than popularity, fame, or comfort. A goal that exceeds any of these. And that goal is to know Jesus Christ fully and completely. Because there is no greater joy than knowing Jesus, the one who died for us and was raised. There is no greater joy than knowing the creator of the universe who holds all things in his hands. There is no greater joy than knowing the source of joy himself. And so Paul calls us toward this ultimate goal, which is far better than any other goal a person might set in this world. So from our text this morning, we must pursue the goal of knowing Jesus fully and completely as Christians. So if this is what we are to strive for then as believers, how do we do this? In our text, Paul shows us several different ways. By first, focusing on Christ. Second, by following godly examples. Third, by fixing our often wrong perspective. And then fourth, by fueling our commitment. And so it is in this way that we strive for the greatest goal and prize there is, which is 
Jesus himself, the one we've been singing and praising even here this morning. So we do this first then by focusing on Christ. Paul has just said emphatically that it is his whole goal in life to know Jesus more and more in every conceivable way possible because there is nothing better than knowing him personally and intimately. So Paul strives with every ounce of his strength to know Jesus in this way. But as we come to verse 12, Paul wants to clarify something for the believers in Philippi. In humility, he wants them to recognize that he hasn't reached this goal yet. He hasn't arrived or reached a state of perfection. The great apostle Paul is a work in progress. And if Paul was still a work in progress even after everything that he went through, so are we as well. So Paul's words here then grates against a prideful spirit of perfection. We can't ever say that we've arrived in this lifetime, and we can't say that we've come to know all there is about Jesus or God ever. And to say such things, to believe that we've known everything there is about God or Jesus, is pride and ignorance. I mean, if the Apostle Paul is saying, hey guys, I haven't reached this goal yet, what makes us think we can say something like that? So our pursuit of knowing Jesus, as Paul demonstrates here, leads us then to humility. The more we come to know Jesus, the more we realize how little we truly know about him. And as we realize this truth then, it, it drives us forward to know Jesus more and more and more, even as it does for Paul. So as Paul recognizes that he hasn't arrived yet, he then doubles down on his efforts to know Jesus the goal all the more. And he does it in light of an incredibly encouraging truth. He makes every effort to take hold of this goal because Jesus has taken hold of him. In mentioning how Christ took hold of him, he is no doubt referencing the time when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He remembers how Jesus intervened in his life and saved him. When Paul was going astray, killing Christians across the board and heading to hell, Jesus intervened and he reached down and he showed him the light. And so Paul remembers this moment, how Jesus saved him. And it's this truth that drives him forward in knowing the one who saved him from hell. And the same ought to be true for us even here this morning. While your conversion experience may not have been as dramatic as Paul's here in the text, God did the exact same thing for you. If you know Christ as your Savior, he graciously intervened in your life when you were heading to destruction. When you were going astray, he took hold of you by his grace. He saved you, and now he holds you to himself. And this is what we must remember, especially, especially when we are weary of running the Christian life. Sometimes we can get tired when we are pursuing Christ with all that we are. 
And we're all aware just how difficult life can get sometimes. But in these moments, we must remember with Paul that it is Christ who holds us in our struggles and our pains. It is Christ who is right there beside us in the ups and downs of life, and it is Christ who is helping us to attain the goal of knowing him fully. And so as Paul told us earlier in chapter 1, so he tells us again, he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If Christ holds us, he will certainly help us in our journey to know him fully. He will not let us go. So we don't focus then merely on trying harder or our own self-effort, but we focus on Christ and what he's done for us. He saved us. For just as we are saved by grace, so we make progress by grace alone. Paul then lovingly says, my brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. So in case you didn't get it the first time, let me say it again. My brothers and sisters, I have not arrived yet. I haven't attained the goal yet. I'm striving for it, but I haven't done it yet. But even though I haven't taken hold of this goal yet, there is something I hold with absolute certainty. Forgetting everything that gets in the way of that goal and reaching forward to Christ. And forgetting what is behind, Paul is putting away anything in his past that might get in the way of knowing Jesus fully. For Paul, this meant counting as loss all of his past achievements and his heritage as we covered last week. So rather than look to these past things for significance and purpose, Paul counts it as loss. He forgets about it so that he can gain Jesus and know him. So in repeating this call, Paul is emphasizing once more the need for each of us to do the same in our own life. We must forget that which is behind us and focus on Christ instead. For he alone is our righteousness and our life. So define your life then by pursuing the goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, in pursuing this goal that Paul calls us to, we find that there is a prize promised by God's call to us in Jesus. And really, that prize and goal are really one and the same in this text. What is the prize that Paul speaks of? Well, if you asked me when I was in middle school, way back in the day, I would say the prize that we get is heaven, right? I mean, I think that's how your children might answer if you ask them that question. We get new bodies. We get paradise. We get a house that God's been preparing for us. We get, you know, streets of gold, a heavenly crown, and, you know, so on and so forth. But that's not what Paul is focusing our attention on here. That is not the prize he is speaking of. Instead, he calls us to the greatest prize there ever was. And that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the goal and the prize that is promised to us and what each of our hearts should long for more than anything else. For in the end, we will gain Jesus. We will be with the one who died for us 
and saved us. We will be with the one who took the eternal hell we deserved upon his shoulders so that we could go free. We will get the one who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us no matter how many times we failed him. And we get to be with the one who has been infinitely kind and patient with us despite our numerous failings. So we get Jesus. He is the goal. He is the prize. So like Paul, we must lock on to Jesus like a laser-focused, heat-seeking missile. We must set our eyes on Christ, the ultimate prize that we are living for. And like Paul, we must say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because even in dying, we gain Jesus, the treasure of our souls. So with this challenging call and the example that Paul sets before us, Paul says, take all of this, everything that I've just said, and think in this mature way. Think in this mature way. And the mature in the faith will adopt the way I am teaching. And so Paul is calling all of us to think in this way. Have the mind of Christ. Pursue Christ above all. And leave behind everything else that is fleeting and not helping you know Jesus more. Now, in writing this letter, Paul realizes that some people uh, may not agree completely with Paul on every issue that he's addressing here. And he realizes that some might even outright reject Paul's call. So in humility, he readily acknowledges this reality, and he says, if anyone happens to think differently about anything... God will also reveal this to you. And saying this, Paul realizes that he's only human. And in the end, it is really dependent on God to change the hearts of the people he is writing to. So Paul, in writing these words, displays that his confidence is not in his own writing ability or his persuasive tactics, but God, who can convince people of the truth, He speaks, whether in this lifetime or the next, God is the one who will reveal what he is saying to them. So Paul calls them again to hold to the truth. Pursue this truth and live it out by focusing on Jesus. After calling the believers to focus on Jesus intently, he then calls them to follow the right examples of the faith. Follow godly examples. And this is the second way we pursue Jesus as the goal. Paul says right out, imitate my example. Follow my example as I follow Christ. And in this, he is calling them to learn from his pattern and way of life. And not only by his example, but others who live according to Paul's example. And he says, pay careful attention attention to godly examples of the faith. Now, in calling us to follow right examples of the faith, it's good for us to note that Paul isn't calling for exact copycat replicas, okay? He's not calling you to say, okay, Aaron Downs is a godly person, I'm going to you know, copy everything in his life, all right? You don't have to go bald like him, but do pursue the theological knowledge that he has. Like, he's not calling for exact replicas, 
But what he is saying is that we ought to imitate godly characteristics and patterns of believers in our assembly, those who love Jesus with their full heart. And while I don't copy everything Aaron does, there is much in his life that I try to replicate as he loves God. And the same with Steve and others in our assembly here this morning. Because in doing this, we are furthered in our pursuit of knowing Jesus more fully as we see it lived out among us in our assembly. So we work towards this end, and that's part of the reason we gather as a church. We gather to learn and grow from one another. And this includes your pastors along with every man, woman, and child in this room here this morning. We work to imitate godly patterns that we see lived out as we pursue Jesus. So if we are going to do what Paul calls for then, it requires certain prerequisites for all of us. First, to do this will require humility. It requires that we acknowledge that we have not arrived yet. Even as Paul admitted earlier on, neither have we. We have room to grow in knowing Jesus more and more. And so it means acknowledging that we may be deficient in certain areas of our Christian faith. And the reality is that we all do. We are all a work in progress seeking to learn. So practically speaking then, approach other believers with humility and not pride. Don't approach one another thinking that you have nothing to learn or grow in, but approach one another with the recognition that it is very possible that you can learn something from other godly believers. So we walk with humility with each other, with the orientation towards learning and growing and our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. But second, if we are to imitate godly examples and, and patterns of living, we have to get to know one another meaningfully. It's not enough that we just see each other once a week on Sunday morning here together, and that will hardly do, since Paul calls us to pay careful attention to godly patterns and behaviors. And you cannot do that if you only see each other once a week. It's impossible. So develop meaningful relationships with one another that extend outside our, our gathering once a week. Pursue getting to know one another at church events, having people into your home, or getting together with people over a meal or a common interest, hobby, or coffee. Learn from each other by invading one another's lives in an intentional, loving way. Now, this is scary for many because in reality, as you do this, you open up yourself to seeing them seeing not just your best parts, your best days, but also your worst days and what you don't do well. And the reality is we all have shortcomings. We all aren't doing super well in areas that we maybe should be. But in these moments, as one pastor puts it, it's what we do with these shortcomings and failings that matter. In these moments, do we model repentance and humility where we do fall short? Or do we instead brush over our sins and minimize them or pretend they don't even exist? If we do the former, then even our shortcomings and our failings as we get to know one another can point people Jesus. And this is what we are all striving to do. We draw near to each other 
without fear because Christ has forgiven our sins and our failings. And so our identity is not in our failings or our shortcomings, but it is in Christ who is our righteousness and our life. So knowing Jesus opens us up to know one another more deeply and fully and so imitate godly patterns that we see in each other. So take the initiative. Get to know one another. Pursue meaningful relationships even as Christ pursued you. And let me make sure to include our children and our teenagers in the room here this morning. Please get to know one another and the adults in this room. You can learn from godly examples and you can also be an example to your peers in this room. Don't think that just because you're young, you cannot do what Paul is calling you to do here. Be a godly example and pursue others, even as Paul calls us here. A large part of who I am today is actually the result of teenagers doing this for me when I was in seventh grade. There were teenagers striving to pursue me in love and be a godly example to myself. And I still remember to this day the significant impact it had on my life. It set me on a trajectory towards where I am today. There was one incident where there were sophomores and juniors in the youth group who came to my birthday party as a seventh grader. Okay, now, as you know, in middle school, remember back to those days, it is really cool if those older kids give you any kind of attention at all. And there's like these sophomores and these juniors who came to my party. And I'm like, what are you doing here? This is awesome. I'm not cool. I'm a loser. I know it. But you're here loving me. And it's in this moment, through their selfless love for me, even when I had nothing to offer them, that I began to understand, really, the selfless love of Christ for me. And so you can do the same for others. We can do the same for each other. You may never know how much of an impact you may have on others' understanding of Jesus' love for you as you model it for them. So please know then that our call here isn't just to learn from Christ-like examples, but it is also to demonstrate his likeness to each other. And so in doing this, we come to know Christ in fuller and more significant ways. So Paul calls us then to follow godly examples in our pursuit of knowing Jesus fully. And in contrast to that then, avoid those who live as enemies of the cross. Avoid replicating these wrong examples because it is incredibly dangerous. Instead of finding their life in Christ, these enemies of the cross, instead looked for life in the carnal desires of the world. They, they glory in things that they should actually be ashamed of. And as a result, their end is destruction because there is no life in the world but in Jesus alone. Now, these enemies of the cross may be Judaizers uh, that Paul just referenced earlier on, or it may be Roman Gentiles of sorts who are living in carnal ways that look appealing. And I'm fine whatever way you take this interpretation because commentators are really split on that. But what is important is that Paul calls them to avoid this and instead follow right examples of Christ. Don't follow these wrong examples of the world, 
but follow gospel models. So then rather than having your mind consumed with worldly role models that pursue the things of the earth, adopt the mind of Christ and follow his example instead. So it's these first two ways that we pursue knowing Jesus fully. But then third, we do this by fixing our often wrong perspective. So rather than have the mindsets of these worldly people, remember who you are. Remember, Paul says, that you are citizens of heaven and not this earth. In contrast to these people, you are citizens of heaven. So in contrast to those who find their life as citizens of this world, who pursue worldly carnal pleasures, find your life as Christ's citizens. And this is a repeated call that Paul's already mentioned back in chapter 1. And he repeats it here again because the temptation of the world is strong and it was pulling at them. The Christians were tempted to find their identity primarily as a Roman citizen with the esteemed privileges that Rome offered. But it's here that Paul reminds them that their primary calling is not being a Roman citizen, but a citizen of Christ's kingdom above. So live as people of Christ's kingdom here on earth. Conduct yourself pursuing Christ on earth as we await our king's return. And where the people of Roman colonies eagerly looked to the emperor of Rome to be their savior in in all respects, So Paul takes this basic desire, and he says, in the same way, look as people of Christ's kingdom, not to the emperor of Rome for saving, but look to Jesus. Place your ultimate hope not in an earthly ruler for saving or deliverance, but place it in Jesus Christ, the truest Savior there ever was. So if we were to modernize Paul's words to us today, he might say, don't ultimately look to a political ruler for deliverance. Whether Democrat, Republican, or third party, or whatever, don't look to them ultimately. Place your hope in Jesus above all. And while it's okay to be active politically, the danger comes when as Christians, we place too much hope in a certain politician rather than Jesus. And it becomes evident that maybe we've placed too much hope in this world when we are absolutely devastated when our politician loses or when we villainize and hate on other believers who disagree with us politically. And so if we ever find ourselves in such a situation, we must remember where our ultimate hope lies. Not in the fallible rulers of earth, but in Christ Jesus. For he is far stronger and better a savior than anything In this world. And it is Jesus, not politics, that ought to unite all of us together as one. So Paul calls us to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of Christ's kingdom. He is our king, he is our ultimate savior, and nothing else is. So we eagerly look for the return of our king, as Paul says, who will transform our bodies with all of its frailties and weaknesses, to be like his glorious body. So whereas the earthly rulers of this age can only put band-aids on bullet holes, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
will fix everything perfectly at his return. All that is wrong in the world he will put right. All that is sad will come undone. All that is evil and wrong will be punished and judged. And all that is broken and torn will be restored and repaired fully. All the hurt, pain, and suffering we've experienced will be healed. And not just a little, but all of it entirely by Christ himself at his return. He will do this ultimately through the power he possesses in himself. Because of this future certainty, Resurrection Church, find your citizenship not in the world or its fleeting pleasures, not in the political rulers of this age, but in Christ Jesus, who is stronger, who is better than any of these other things. And so it's by fixing our perspective on Christ and our citizenship in heaven that we come to know Jesus more fully. Finally, then, we do this by fueling our commitment. As Paul closes out this letter, he reminds them again of his care for them. For they are his dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters. They are his joy and crown. And so because Paul cares for them, deeply, and is overwhelmed with concern for them, he calls them once more to stand firm in this way. In other words, feel your commitment to Christ. Double down on your efforts. Don't run out of gas. Keep pursuing this goal of knowing Jesus more and more and more. And how does he expect us to stand firm and so fuel our efforts? by focusing on Christ, by following godly examples, and by fixing our perspective. We fuel our efforts as we do what Paul has called us to do here already. And so this is our call to all of us as we close this morning to pursue Jesus in these ways and so gain Christ, our ultimate treasure and reward. So it is my hope that it is the goal of each and every one of you to know Jesus more fully and that this drives your life and it anchors it. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you amazed by Christ. He is everything. He is better than the fleeting riches and pleasures of this world. He is better than the love a family can give to one. He is better than any of the political rulers of this age, no matter how strong. And so we ask, Lord, that our hearts would glory not in the things of earth, but in Christ Jesus, who is above all. May we find our identity in him and make our lifelong goal to know him more fully each and every day. We need your help in this matter. And so we ask, Lord, that you would take our lives and that you would consecrate it for your purposes. Would you do this for your glory?